This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, based in Salt Lake City with offices in Oregon and California. For over 65 years, Clyde Snow has represented clients throughout the West. Clyde Snow, serious about solutions. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water into context. I'm Emily Lewis, your host, and I'm a water attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah, practicing creative solutions to today's and tomorrow's water problems. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect. I'm very excited for today's episode, like I am most, but particularly so for today, because I think the issue of water rights valuations is incredibly important and has many, many applications and many, many contexts, and is something that people are trying to kind of understand more. So I have two experts with me today. I've got Harry Seeley, who is a principal of Westwater Research, and also Brett Bobie, who is the operating director at Westwater Research. And this is Brett's second appearance on the podcast, and this will be Harry's first time with us today. Before we dive in, gentlemen, why don't we, for our listeners, just give kind of a little bit of background about who you are and how you came to water. And why don't we start off with Harry, since you're new to the show? Sure. Thank you, Emily. I am a water resource economist by training. And originally came to water through a project that I was exposed to during my first job at a Pacific Northwest National Laboratory after undergraduate school. I got an opportunity to work on an economics project related to agriculture in Kern County and really never turned back from there. All right. And then how long have you been with Westwater? Uh, Almost 20 years. Oh my gosh. Well done. (laughs) You guys can't see Harry, but that doesn't look feasible. (laughs) Awesome. Cool. Well, I'm super excited to talk to you, Harry, and kind of get into your skills because I think that it's both a skill and an art. And so I'm excited to kind of get your perspectives. Brett, would you give our listeners a kind of reminder about who you are and kind of how you came to water? Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm operating director at Westwater. I've been with the company about eight years. And my background is actually in engineering. So I left grad school with an engineering degree and an interest in water, (laughs) but not knowing what to do with that exactly. But uh, I worked for a company that does a lot of Native American water rights work. And so really picked up a lot of skills through that job, which I was at for about 12 years, and then um, took an interest in economics and joined Westwater about eight years ago. And yeah, so my, my initial sort of interest in water really formed in college. I took a hydrology course and I liked the professor. The material was interesting. And I just sort of started walking down that path (laughs) from there. And, uh, you know, as you know, Emily, that water is just like, it's such a complicated and and deep topic that you honestly can just study water your whole life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's been interesting. I've, I've worked in engineering. I've worked in economics. And it continues to be interesting work. Yep. Endlessly fascinating. There's no end to the onion layers of water. (laughs) So you guys, before we dive into kind of the specifics of water evaluations and what you think of when I say that term, could you give us a little bit of a a background about what Westwater Research is and kind of the services that you provide? Because I think that might also help our listeners kind of place where you're coming at this discussion from. Sure. I'll uh, I'll start and then Harry can add to it. So we're a consulting company. We have 
five different offices around the West, but we really focus on projects that intersect with water and particularly water rights and economics. So our three lines of business are providing appraisals and valuation services to clients, which we'll talk a lot about today, providing transaction assistance. So we help people buy and sell water rights or some form of water entitlement. And then third, we do studies, which really are economics and water. So it could be a market study for a particular region so someone can better understand the transactions happening in an area. It could be an economic study that is looking at impacts of water transfers for a nonprofit or a state agency who has sort of a policy view of water. And we're helping provide them data and information to help inform policy. Or it could be a, an economic study of benefits associated with a project, a water infrastructure project, where we're helping identify whether this is a economically feasible project that should be supported by public dollars, public funding. So there's kind of three lines of business, valuation, transactions, and a catch-all, which is intersection of economics and water, we, we tend to find projects. And so for those folks who aren't familiar with Westwater, one thing I do love about your products too, is that like, they are like, I think very accessible. And I think you guys do a really good job with graphically representing them. You have a lot of good graphs and like summary tables and really do a good job of like condensing a lot of really complicated information into nicely understandable and digestible reports, which I, I always appreciate. Harry, do you have any other kind of glean you want to put on Westwater before we start diving in? No, I, th- I think Brett covered the our, our main business lines pretty well. Great. We may get into some of the nuances around two of the categories. One, the sort of the economic planning studies around water and water valuation, because there are there is some significant overlap there, but but in different contexts. Mm-hmm. Well, as the operating director, I think that's probably a good task for Brett to do. Yeah. <laughs> we are joking about that's a that's a very large title. Okay, you guys. So let's dive in. So I think, you know, ostensibly kind of the conversation that I wanted to have today is really around the valuation question and kind of the appraisal element of water rights, because we're getting into an era where here, especially in Utah, we have extremely acute drought conditions. Shortage is very real. And that is increasing market activity for water rights here in the state. And so we are at our office, just as a law firm, you know, we don't do any kind of valuations, but we probably once a week get a question about water right valuations, you know, people trying to kind of understand what they have and and, and how that's valuable for various contexts. And so I was hoping that maybe we could just kind of start with just like a little basic discussion about like when you kind of start in how do you start that process? When somebody comes to you with a question about, is it either like find me a water right for X value or do they come to you and have you actually look at a specific water right and you kind of like assess its conditions for its value? Like how, from your perspective, you guys kind of start this? I think most often we are asked by clients to assist in developing a professional opinion of value for water assets or water entitlements that they own and are either looking to monetize in some way or are wanting to understand the value so they can make important management decisions, typically around infrastructure, really to 
support and protect the water right for future uses. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and so oftentimes that, you know, we're asked, we're asked to help in that particular context. I'd say it's less often that we're asked to value water rights on behalf of a buyer, but, but mm-hmm. in some cases that's, that does happen. And so are those owners typically like independent fee water right owners? Are they municipality looking for like an assessment of its portfolio that it can like put on a bond application or, you know, and what, who are those clients typically? Yes, all of those. (laughs) And then some, so, you know, as you might imagine, water rights are held by diverse interests and we, we have clients across all of the potential interests you might imagine in water and water rights. And so when somebody comes to you with a question, kind of how do you start in on your analysis? Like what are the categories you kind of start really looking at to kind of get to an ultimate valuation? Yeah, I'll start. And then, and then Brett, maybe you can jump in. I think that we, we always start with the water right. So, so what are the legal characteristics of that water right? What's the regulatory regime within which that water right is managed? And how do those different characteristics impact the potential alternative uses for a particular water right. So in some cases, there may be limitations on the transferability geographically for a water right that that essentially defines the market area. So that for a surface water right, for example, maybe that's a, a watershed or a basin. And so we know that right off the bat, our analysis should be focused on potential uses of water this particular water right within that geographic area. In other cases, there may be infrastructure, so pipelines, canals, and so forth that can expand the potential geographic area or market area for a water right. But that, that's usually where we start is, is trying to understand the boundaries for a market for the water right. And then the analysis will flow from there. Mm-hmm. I always like to say water is so interesting because it's it's hyper local at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, but then it's right. not though. But at the same time, then it's not. But it can also move very far distances. But it's it's just as an interesting asset to work with because it does have conditions that kind of do frame your analysis. And a lot of it just depends on ex- physically where you are. Like I like that you come back to like a tactile thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's you know actually. Myself, prior to knowing more about water, I think that there was a, a common trend to just see water values and say, oh, that's what water is worth <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in the Western U.S. But, you know, it is it is very local. And maybe just to add to what Harry was saying, I mean, the way I think about just starting out that valuation and there's a there's a series of analyses that get into it. But I, I like to think of it as characteristics of the water right you're being asked to value and then characteristics of like where that water is located and what is the market or geographic area that that water right would likely be sold into or or could be transacted into. So, you know, and and those those are both independent things that can really influence value. So the characteristics of the water, right, you know, you you could have a very senior, very reliable water supply, large volume or small volume. These are all characteristics of the water, right? But that water, right, let's just say it's senior in large volume. If you are in a very rural part of the Western US, the market is very different. The the market value and what we would think about is very different than if that very reliable, very large water right was in in close proximity to an urban area. 
Mm-hmm. And then, so I think just starting the process, you think about the characteristics of the water rate and also the characteristics of where that water will likely be used, as Harry was saying. I think that's that's how we tend to approach that initial set of questions just to get a feel for the right. <laughs> and also just for listeners who may be kind of, you know, not on the legal side, when you guys say characteristics, you kind of like alluded to it, Brett, but you're talking priority date, which is establishes when in times of shortage is going to be shut off. You're talking volume of water, you know, acre feet or like a CFS diversion level. You're talking source of water. Is it from like a, a good source or is it from like a finicky spring? It's current beneficial use, you know, what is it being used for, period of use, any other characteristics in there that I miss that you guys typically look at? I think the consumptive component of the water okay. right is, is often a critical piece of the analysis. Yes. Yeah. So Harry, for and those then, who are newer to that question, could you kind of talk a little bit about how a recognized beneficial use and the consumptive use of that water, kind of what is the interplay of that? Because I, th- I agree with you 100% that that's something that curious people are starting, curious people in the public are kind of starting to ask questions about, you know, like it's kind of becoming a 2.0 discussion, which I think is fantastic. So could you kind of walk through a little bit about like what the consumptive value of a water right is and how, when you guys are assessing it, you come to that value? Sure. So I think the context that's easiest to think about the consumptive component of a water right is an irrigation water right where water is diverted from a stream and applied to crops. And a certain portion of the water that's that's applied to those crops can essentially not be used by the crop for plant evapotranspiration. And that component, which is often called return flow, is water that gets back to the stream effectively. And so the consumptive component is, is the diverted water that does not get back to the stream. And that's the volume of water effectively that could be transferred to a new use without causing any sort of injury to other existing water users on the system. Mm -hmm. And so when you're talking to a potential owner looking for your valuation, you know, I, we run into our office too, is explaining that concept. And when someone's like, oh, but I've got 400 acre feet. And you're like, yes, but if it's 50% consumptive or the duty value is 50% in this area, you really only have 200 acre feet you're working with. And kind of explaining that to people, I I like, I always feel terrible. I feel like I'm like, but you only have half. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it it can get worse than that. I mean, there are certainly large water rights that are diversion rights, but but are, you know, for the most part, entirely non-consumptive. So, Mm -hmm. so a power a power production right or a aquaculture right, those can be essentially just pass-through facilities that really, from the legal perspective, limit the potential new uses that that water can be applied to, and which in turn affects the value. We, okay. do see, we do see a lot in the West that there's a lot of what someone might call paper water rights out there, where the water right says you can divert for CFS, but because the stream doesn't always provide for CFS, because the actual use of the crop doesn't demand that, the transferable volume, like what you can actually transfer to another use at another location, is sometimes very different for than what's written on the, the water right itself. So yeah, it, it's an important analysis in, in valuation because value of a water right is volume times unit price. That's usually how we think about it. So you're taking 
a volume in acre feet, you're multiplying it by a certain price in dollars per acre foot, resulting in a value in dollars. So mm -hmm. the influence of volume is just as important as the influence in price. I love that. Okay. So Brett's going to lead us to exactly where I wanted to go. So just as a quick summary, when you guys first get a project on your desk, you kind of sim give this simultaneous dual analysis about the legal characteristics of the right, telling you kind of like what you have on paper. And then, but also understanding that on paper doesn't always translate into what you have as the transferable asset. So kind of making that analysis. So if you have a legal characteristics analysis to get you to the nub of what your transferable asset is, and then you also apply a, a, a locality analysis saying, you know, what is the value of this water right in terms of its use in the local watershed where it could economically be moved? You, know, you don't have to build a big new pipeline or something like that. So you kind of do those two dual analyses, which gets me to this question then, kind of what you're trying to figure out is, you know, volume for unit price. How do you guys, starting from that, that, that kind of dual analysis standpoint, move to a unit price? Like, what are the considerations you guys think about, you know, when figuring out how much per acre foot this might be worth? Well, I, think, I want all your trade secrets. I want all the trade yeah, secrets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Happy to share. Um, so the trade secret is you ask Harry. Yeah. <laughs> Patented. We, We're going to patent it. <laughs> I think we, we tend to start from a, a traditional approach that you might see for, for lots of appraisals where, you know, we try to find like water rights that have been transacted within the same market region. And so we, you know, it's a comparable sales approach. So we look at prior transactions to understand similarities and differences of those transactions and underlying water rights with, with regard to the water right we are being asked to, to value. So that that is our preferred approach to arriving at a unit value. And then, you know, it's important going back to this consumptive versus non-consumptive discussion to be able to make sure that your apples to apples in your comparison to prior transactions. So you you want to be sure that you're valuing water on the same unit basis across transactions and when when applied to a particular water right that we're working on for a client. So I would say that you know prior prior transactions are the preferred approach. Now that's often that we don't have what we feel is a robust enough set of transactions from within a particular market region, which may require us to look more broadly geographically at other water transactions that have happened, but that we can relate to our subject water, right? That's a, a less preferred approach, but mm -hmm. one that can be useful. And in those contexts where we don't feel like we have a robust enough set of market data from water right only transactions, it's very common. In fact, I would say, you know, almost all the time, we are applying two or three different independent valuation approaches to establish an appropriate unit price for the water. And usually it, that can be a, a range within which we need to then reconcile a, a narrower range at the end of the end of the analysis. A couple of questions in there. So, you know, your preferred approach is basically common appraisal best practice of looking at comparables. And if there aren't comparables and you're going to kind of go to this analogous transaction format, 
to satisfy that first scenario, where do you go to find those transactions? Because I, you know, one thing, and Brett knows as well with his work on the water banking with us, that kind of market transparency and just really honestly, like collection of market material is really missing in any kind of public forum in a lot of places. You know, we've had a lot of discussions in this podcast with several folks who are building local markets or building platforms or exchanges to try and address that. But you guys have been at this for quite some time now. You know, where do you go to find that raw data? Yep. Yeah. yeah, Brett, do you want to take that? Sure. So we have the, we have we have places where we've worked before where we kind of have we kind of know where we want to look. If you know, mm-hmm. if we've worked in this area. We know the data sets, both county level, state level, whatever they may be. But a, a few common things we do. So the state regulatory record of water transfers is a good place to go in in many states because. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times there's a regulatory approval process to move water from one use to another use or from one location to another location. And they aren't all market transactions, but it's a good place to start to find, to try to find market transactions. That usually looks something like you find out the parties involved in the transaction. You look at the water right record. Maybe there's something in the record like a lease agreement or a sale or reference to a sale. But oftentimes the state regulatory records are simply giving you context and, and like the parties involved. And in it's it takes time to follow up with them to find find out any sort of information about the transaction, what exactly was was transferred, any sort of pricing data. So that's one place to go. Occasionally there's a compilation of stuff from a again from a regulatory standpoint that some entity is is running water rentals out of a reservoir, for instance. So they'll actually maintain a table of water rentals for the year. So it might just be contacting that entity that runs that program, that rental program to ask for that data. Or it might be a, a groundwater program. I'm thinking of some programs in Texas. It might be a groundwater program where they run a series of lease agreements. And then there's recorded document searches. There's, there's land sales, which are sometimes tied to water. There's people in the areas like, you know, real estate brokers and people like that who you just get to know and you have open you know open communication with about things. So, I'd say there's a lot of avenues and in for any given area, you know, we try to identify what's most efficient, but usually we're trying multiple research avenues to try to get more information. This is like legitimate like gumshoe you yeah, investigative work. legitimate gumshoe, you got it. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. I, yes. I'll get you guys put a hat. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. So really like, I mean, you guys are earning your keep in terms of actually calling parties to transactions that look similar to the one that you kind of want to assess, you know, digging through those regulatory documents, the rental pools, but it's a lot of work to come to, you know, a good list of comparables. So when do you guys find that you, you run into the scenario where that information is not available? Like, have you found like trends or pockets where like, wow, this kind of community seems to be lacking in this data or wow, these kinds of areas seem to be pretty dead in terms of like water transaction information. Like, have you seen any kind of trends or threads from that perspective or does it just kind of depend on where you are? Well, I know. Oh, go ahead, Harry. Yeah, I would say I run into that issue a lot where we just mm-hmm. have a dearth of market data is when we're working for... NGOs that are 
trying to transact water for environmental benefit. So mm. oftentimes that where they're trying to transact water is, is in rural areas, headwaters, where there isn't a significant urban demand for water, at least not yet. And so there just is not the same market drivers that have resulted in water right only transactions in other areas that are maybe more water short or or there's just more competition from a diverse set of users that drive market transactions. So that that's where I tend to kind of rural area, headwater areas, that, that seems to be where we run into this issue more often than not. Mm-hmm. And is that kind of also though like a different set of conditions? So I'm assuming you guys are also coming back to like somewhere, you know, somewhere inside that market data that Brett just indicated, someone sat down and was like, well, I make X dollars per acre. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I need to get X amount of money to cover my acreage. I'm going to take out of production if I do this, you know, like Mm -hmm. somewhere there's a base nugget of like dollars per acre as one of the key considerations for these market transactions that, you know, Brett just kind of went over because there, there comes back to that beneficial use. For these environmental flows and environmental benefits, though, like that's not the same driver, even if it's not the same reason for why there's a lack of market activity. But like, does having that flow be kind of inherently different change the value at all? Or is is that per acre use still kind of coming into consideration when you try and find a, an appropriate value? Yeah, I think that the current use value in that context really is is the most important consideration. Because what what we're trying to help is both sides understand the value of water in irrigation, for example, its current use. And that provides a, a basis for negotiation or valuation. So you at least want to know financially what the seller is giving up to mm-hmm. participate in a transaction. You know, oftentimes it, it takes a little bit more than that to support a market transaction. But we can look at market prices for land, or we can estimate, you know, conduct a financial analysis to understand the net returns to crop production under different circumstances to help provide a, a basis for value in areas mm-hmm. where there is limited or no water right only transaction history. Kind of your deferred is not the word, not deferred value, but what's the word when you kind of give up your value? Kind of what the farmer... Yeah, foregone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, foregone. Okay. That that makes total sense. That makes total sense. Are you finding that these groups that are... Cause, and this is a legitimate question because we just did a 2020 legislative session. If you haven't been following the Great Salt Lake here in the state of Utah, it is on ecological collapse, like legitimately the, the brink of having our microinvertebrate species collapse. So not all the little brine flies are not going to hatch next year. And so the state of Utah created a $40 million water trust with the intent of leasing and buying water rights to bring to the Great Salt Lake for those purposes. And the trust is going to be operated by two nonprofits, the National Audubon Society and the Nature Conservancy. And so have you found in terms of you can get to a per acre foot value that kind of ties back to this foregone gain that the farmer would have had if they'd used the water for its traditional current purposes. 
Have you found that those agencies or those nonprofits have been able to raise the extent of money to buy and purchase water at those prices? Well, I think one thing that pops in my mind is depending on where you are, <laughs> uh, so it's a depends answer, but depending on where you are, that calculation of foregone revenue from crop production, it really does set a baseline. But if, you, if you're the producer, do you really want to accept $100 from this other use just to make up for the fact that you lost $100 from production? So there's usually a premium over that ag production number, again, so long as there's sort of demand for the water. So, so maybe like 115 to take to account that like his alfalfa stand is going to go out or something like that. Yeah, like if, if he's going to lose out on, well, that's a whole other issue of carryover impacts of not irrigating. <laughs> uh, but say you factor those in, say say all the available information says that producer is going to lose $100. They might not want to just stop doing what they've been accustomed to doing and what they're used to doing because it's a headache for anything less than $150 or $125, you know? So there's usually a premium over that to get water into a new use just because of the momentum hurdle, I'll call it. Yeah, and to your question on, you know, is there funding limitations to support these types of transactions or efforts like is being considered in the Great Salt Lake? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the significance of the problem in the amount of water required to solve or head off the problem, in many cases, far exceeds the budgets allocated for market transactions. I think, you know, the Great Salt Lake, if you look at Walker Lake in Nevada, a similar situation where it's, you know, increasing in salinity. There they had, a, at the Walker Lake situation, there was, you know, many millions of dollars allocated through federal appropriation, and they're they're still working through that money, but the question is, is that even going to be enough to solve the problem? So I, I think the shortfall, you know, it's a, it's a, going to be a continuing problem that's going to require continuing funding to support these types of market based efforts. Okay, mm-hmm. great. <clears throat> that's super helpful because I do think that like I, I I'm with you 100%, Harry. I, I feel like the mission of the water community right now, and I say that I try and say this in every podcast because I think it's really important to get this out, is to send a message, and this is particularly more the Great Salt Lake, but also some Colorado River overlap, just you know, dealing with times of drought and shortage, is expectations management, you know, because I feel like there has been like a lot of really positive, proactive work done, especially here in the state of Utah in the last couple of years. But like even with all that work we still may not find the solutions we're seeking because there's just at the end of the day, objectively not enough water to go around. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So you're going to have to come at it from, you know, market-based, you know, water right valuation, market-based transactions. That's, that's one tool in the toolkit, but it's going to take all the tools to find a solution. I'm afraid. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I kind of want to, okay. Maybe kind of a little bit of a left turn about that tool bucket. So are you guys at all moving into ag efficiency is kind of like the big buzzword here in the state of Utah, or ag optimization is another way that we describe it, but essentially encouraging agricultural producers to line canals, switch to LEPA systems, switch to LISA systems, even subsurface irrigation in some parts of the state. And so really trying to move 
to new practices. There's been a lot of really good work done by the Ag Optimization Committee about just like managerial or operational discussions, like moving to on-demand systems if we can for some of our small systems and some of our big systems actually. And in this is kind of like an implicit question or thought that if we can get people to use less, some water will come up on the market and be available to be used for other purposes because we haven't needed the full extent of the water to keep our traditional growth. How often do you guys kind of work with the concepts of like the market for ag optimization water? Because this to me, I think is another area where we've gotten the public to a 2.0 discussion, but getting to a 3.0 discussion on this is like a whole nother layer of understanding. <laughs> yeah, I think there are, I'm interested to see what Harry says on this, so I'm not, not going to talk too long. I think there are locations that we've seen that just the unique dynamics are that you can conduct ag efficiency projects and ag efficiency, meaning you're growing the same crop with less water taken from the source. That's what I'm defining sort of ag efficiency as for this. So you're still growing a crop, you're just taking less from the source of water. So going back to those return flows that Harry talked about, all you're doing is reducing return flows. That's the only effect of what you're doing. You're taking less from the source and there's less return flows. Okay, so there are places in the West that I think the dynamics are that, yeah, you, you have something transferable from those ag efficiency projects, but that's the exception to the general rule I have in my head, which is ag efficiency, going to sprinkler, going to drip, it doesn't produce any transferable water. And therefore, it doesn't mean it's not good for the system. It doesn't mean there shouldn't be investment in it. But I think if you're looking to take your water asset and have something that you will get money from because you have a, you, you can transfer the savings, I think it's pretty, it's more rare than common that that actually pans out because those return flows that you're reducing aren't yours. They're somebody else's downstream. And most water transactions that we see, if it's going from agriculture to another use, you only get transferable water if you're actually reducing production in some fashion, reducing consumptive use, but I'll call it production in some fashion. So you're saying because you're diverting less because you need less, you're applying less, which means there's less back into the system. Yeah. So going back to that consumptive use discussion, what you have to transfer to another use is usually what was consumptively used by the crop. Nothing about, you know, all the water that was taken from the source and put back in the water system. None of that is actually yours to transfer. So again, it, it, is it a good idea to spend some, some dollars to do ag efficiency so that the whole ag area doesn't need as much water to produce the same crop? Yeah, there can be benefits to that. But do the individual owners in that ag area have something that's marketable and transferable by growing the same crop with less water? And usually the answer is no, there's nothing marketable about that. There's no marketable water generated from that action. I've got questions, but I want to hear what Harry <laughs> has to say first. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with, with what Brett said. There are obvious public benefits from being more efficient with water. I mean, you're, you're more resilient as an economy, you're more resilient as an agricultural region. And where there are potential market opportunities, I think, come from where there's storage infrastructure in place, for example, that you may be able to back that 
water savings up into a reservoir and retime the water releases or repurpose a portion of that stored water that's been now augmented through water conservation to a new use that that may be able and willing to pay for that water or help fund the conservation actions that resulted in the increased stored water. So so I think there is opportunity, but again, from a legal perspective, it's very circumstantial where those opportunities are and mm-hmm. and pretty nuanced. Yeah. Say, I, here, please. one thing you said that uh, that I think makes a lot of sense is either reservoir storage or groundwater aquifers mm-hmm. are two places that we tend to see efficiency producing something that's actually transferable. I think that's good. Good point. Yeah, I think that's really helpful because I do think that Harry just said that it's nuanced and complicated and complex, which is water in a nutshell. But also, but this, but this issue in particular, because just from my perspective, one of the things I love about working in a private law firm, among things, many things that I don't. Um, is that you do get to see, and I'm sure this is similar for you guys as in working in the consulting field, it is really interesting to work with a lot of clients in the same space that are coming at things with different perspectives. Like we represent developers, we represent you know irrigation companies, you represent municipalities, you represent conservation districts, you represent NGOs. And so like having all those different contexts is really interesting, but they're even inside all those different perspectives, there are common themes. And this is one of those common themes, basically, how do we do more with less? And one of the things I, I I don't worry about it, but I think we need to be cognizant of is that there's public perception and there's like practical reality. And kind of that expectations management is that we just gave out millions and millions of dollars we took all of our ARPA funding here in the state of Utah from the COVID relief and put it into ag efficiency grants. I'm talking like $30 million, which actually doesn't really go that far across the state, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, but like, you know, I think that I think that there's going to be a public desire to see a return from those investments and how we articulate that return, how we look at it and manage it. I think that's the stage of the discussion we're at. Yeah, absolutely. And you see those sorts of public investments and being measured against the public benefits that would accrue from those investments. And this goes back to, I think, the beginning of our conversation where water valuation depends on the context. And if you're talking about measuring or estimating the public benefits from, say, saved water or conserved water, that's a very different type of exercise than trying to estimate the market value of a water right on behalf mm-hmm. of a client. That's something that is a struggle for many that are actually are participating in the water market and trying to figure out, okay, well, how, how can I get compensated to take on these actions on my property or with my water right that, that are going to result in more water mm-hmm. available downstream? And they see the public investments and they say, well, how come I'm not getting paid based upon the public investments in infrastructure and the water savings associated with those? You know, what you're telling me, Harry, is that my water is only worth the market value, which is much different than maybe what the what federal agencies or state agencies or counties have spent to conserve water. 
Mm-hmm. So, so there is kind of the, this important distinction between public benefits analysis and market prices and market analyses that we get pulled into quite often. Yeah. So and this is kind of the question I have for you guys, because we're here, <laughs> you know, I love the like, we'll cross that bridge and we come to it. And I've been like, yeah, we've been like sitting at the bridge. We're at the bridge. Can we, can we cross the bridge? <laughs> I feel like like that's kind of where we are in that discussion because I think that this is there's now been you know in the last two or three years just a, a groundswell of public interest in water and discussion and investment and the drought's been bad and national news media about the West and the Colorado and the Great Salt Lake and so you know these are kind of the discussions we're at and so one of the things I wanted to kind of just like chat with you guys about since you work in the space so much when Harry, you mentioned kind of the barriers and how it's a different analysis from just like a fee market analysis, kind of this public benefit element of it. Like, how do we make those few conditions that work, work more regularly, you know, because Brett, you two mentioned it, like, it's the rare circumstance that one of those projects works out. And most times they don't. What is happening in those rare circumstances where this does work that we can emulate or replicate or support in our public policy? Oh, silence. Waiting for, Brett, <laughs> waiting for Brett to answer that one. <laughs> or just uh, thoughts or not, you know, or we don't know. And that's what we're working through, too. I mean, that's also a good answer. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I really like looking to other areas about, you know, to, to emulate things or to, to copy examples. But, I'm, I'm, you know, I do think something else we've said on this this call or this discussion has been just how local things are. Mm-hmm. We've we've done a lot of work over the years on water banking ideas or transaction platforms or transaction programs, and there you know there's a lot of good stuff to glean from other examples. But the thing that popped in my head when you asked that question, Emily, is the best thing is to just understand the local needs and the objectives mm-hmm. of what what are you trying to do, <laughs> like mm-hmm. to better to to understand and articulate the objectives of what you're trying to do. And to understand the options they have in front of them to get that objective done, and where does this water project, whether that's a capital project, whether that's a transaction or a water transfer, there's usually a couple ways to attack the objective. And I think just that mindset of like, this is the most cost efficient and most effective way to get that objective done. That whole exercise of getting to that point is very useful which probably didn't answer your question at all. <laughs> no, no, I actually do think you did, Brett. And I think one of the ways, because I I kind of, I have an idea in my mind that I wanted you guys to say, and you're, you're kind of getting here, is that I think that it's really hard to be myopic about water. And I think that if we're going to couple this public groundswell of support and funding with actual tangible results, because I think people are going to start asking for tangible results, like sooner rather than later, you know, I do think coming back to, looking at the projects where that is potentially available and saying, if you want results, then we need to like find the conditions that meet, that meet these kinds of results. And in particular, maybe like a closing example of this discussion, Brian and I have been doing the water banking project here in Utah for you know a couple of years. And we've mostly wound up our pilot project activities, which we'll be doing a report on here soon. But in one of our pilot projects, we wanted to look at an in-stream flow through East Canyon Creek and the requirement was that we just needed to spend $30,000 on some telemetry. You know what I mean? And then that gave us one more layer of understanding about 
what we could or could potentially do in that reach of actually getting water from point A to water point B. And so the reason I bring that up is that I kind of sometimes feel like market activity is like a blanket cure-all for everything, but market activity may also mean getting people interested, not only in the idea of transacting water, but if they're really serious, other kinds of complementary investments to make that happen, if that makes sense. Like kind of these services that Brett was describing, like I think there's a, for kind of us to really make the market elements of this ag optimization work, the conversation also needs to be like, what's the barrier to having it work here? And is that surmountable? Yeah, I think around the ag optimization, you know, just assuming a lot of money gets spent to improve efficiency of ag. I think a good question is, assuming it's successful and assuming the existing amount of agriculture needs less water pulled from sources to grow the same amount of crop, I think a question is, what are you doing with the savings, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of things that could be done with those efficiency improvements. You can actually grow more acreage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can expand the irrigated acreage, which has local economic benefits to it. You can preserve aquifers. You can just leave it there because it's good for the long-term health of the aquifers. You could transfer it to the Great Salt Lake. You could, I don't know, I'm not going to list all the ideas, but the point is, I think parallel to investing in ag optimization is having some idea, well, what happens if this efficiency projects are successful? What, What, back to Harry's point, what are the benefits we're seeking to get out of these investments? And, yeah, and, and how do you protect against actually the unintended consequences of mm-hmm. of efficiency projects, which could mean less water downstream, and and that's you know at, at certain times of the year, that's I think where these ancillary investments, both in terms of infrastructure and sort of programs, can help to reallocate those saved supplies to whatever the highest and best uses are. For that water. Cool. Okay, and, uh, you guys. Emily, you remind you reminded me of one thing. Um oh, yeah. our water banking project. We we did develop like a four-page kind of water valuation guide. Mm-hmm. So at some point we'll get that up on the water banking website and it'll be a resource for people to flip through and, and maybe get a little more insight into how we approach this question of water valuation. Yeah. And hopefully that website will be up sooner rather than later. So <laughs> Okay, you guys. Well, before we close out here, anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you just have been kind of like on your mind or closing thought about kind of what you do? I love talking to people that do this day in and day out because I just kind of like seeing what the smart people think. (laughs) I think we covered a lot of ground. I definitely appreciate you uh, getting this together and organizing this discussion. Yeah, for sure. We'll definitely have another one because this issue is not going away. All right, cool. Well, thank you guys so much. And we'll be back in touch. I definitely want to, Brett and I will be back on for some water banking podcast here in the, I hope, the nearest future. Harry, it was lovely to chat with you. And I'm sure we will touch base about some kind of fun question at some point in the future. I look forward to it. Thanks again. Thanks, Emily. I appreciate it. Nothing said in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. This podcast was produced by Andrew Humphreys. Find Ripple Effect on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening.